Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Bill Grant, co-chair of the club's Health and Medicine Member-Led Forum and chair of this program. It is my great pleasure to introduce today's distinguished speaker, Dr. Akhil Palanasamy. This is his second appearance at the Commonwealth Club. Dr. Palanasamy is an integrative medicine physician, educator, and author. He blends his Western medical training with functional medicine and Ayurveda, the traditional medicine of India. He is the author of The Paleovedic Diet, a complete program to burn fat, increase energy, and reverse disease. That book is for sale in the lobby, and he'll be happy to sign copies of that after the program. Uh, Dr. Akhil studied Ayurveda in southern India and found a powerful synergy in combining Ayurveda with a paleo diet in his clinical practice. This led him to coin the term paleovedic diet, which refers to a nutrient-dense, customized paleo diet that incorporates spices, specific fruits and vegetables, intermittent fasting, and an Ayurvedic lifestyle. He sees patients at the Sutter Health Institute for Health and Healing in San Francisco, where he also serves as physician director for community education. Dr. Hakeel has been a consultant with the Medical Board of California for many years. He maintains a popular blog at drakeel.com. Without further ado, Dr. Hakeel. Uh, thank you so much, Bill, for the kind introduction. Um, it's my pleasure to be here with you all tonight. Thank you all for coming, despite all the uh, obstacles uh, that we faced. So my topic is going to be heart disease. And um, so we're going to go through the um, basic overview about what is the, um, you know, the outline of the talk first. So we're going to, uh, to begin. Let me see. I'm having an issue with this pointer here. The, let me try to advance to the first slide. And uh, um, so... Yeah, basically, I'm going to begin by, with an evolutionary perspective, and then we're going to talk about the gut and the relationship between gut health and heart disease. And as part of that, we're going to talk about this condition called uh, SIBO. Um, so I'm just curious, how many people have heard of SIBO, S-I-B-O? Okay, so about maybe a third of the room. Okay. And um, we're going to talk about this important nutrient that's lesser known called vitamin K2. And finally, we're going to compare um, some traditional integrative models and talk about diet in the end and the important um, superfoods for heart health that we can all uh, all eat. So, um, yeah, so you all know that heart disease is, is the leading cause of death, both in the U.S. and worldwide. So it's a major problem. And uh, one in three deaths in the U.S. are caused by heart disease. The cost um, globally is over $1 trillion per year to treat this condition. So, um, you know, it's, it's really a, a global problem. Um, and in the U.S., it's, it's very age-related. So um, th- one of the biggest risk factors for heart disease is, uh, is, is, is getting old, actually, in the, in the West. But um, I want to take this evolutionary perspective. So the modern world which we all live in is completely different from the world that we evolved in as human beings over two million years, the world that we're genetically adapted to the world that our uh, microbiome or gut bacteria are uh, adapted to. So what if we could go back in time and live the way that, you know, we were evolved like our ancestors did and, um, you know, in contrast to our um, modern um, lifestyle. So 
It's not possible to travel back in time, but we can look at modern hunter-gatherer societies to look at their heart disease. So, do they have lower rates of heart disease? That would be a good research question to、um, start with. And、um, the answer is that、uh, they、uh, definitely do. So, looking at indigenous South American hunter-gatherers, there's a tribe known as the Chimani. So, this was a research study which found that in this population, which is in Bolivia. Uh, heart disease is only twenty percent what it is in the U.S. and and in the West, and it's、uh, it's not age related. So we used to think that hunter gatherers don't live very long, so they don't get heart disease. But these、um, people generally live. You know, if they、uh, pass、um, infant morta- infant mortality and escape that, then they generally live、um, long as you know most、uh, most other people. So into their eighties and nineties. And in this study, they actually did CT scans of their heart. So.、Um, Between ages forty to ninety, ninety percent of the Chimani adults had completely clean、um, artery scans of their heart, which is unheard of in terms of、uh, you know the modern world. And this is a picture from Bolivia, where you can、uh, you can see the, some of the Chimani people, and、um, so they have a very physically active life. So that's certainly part of it. On average, they take about you know fifteen to seventeen thousand steps a day. So not crazy, but it's part of their daily routine. And they actually eat about seventy、um, percent of their calories from carbohydrates, but these are unprocessed, complex carbohydrates that are high in fiber,、um, like brown rice and a lot of、uh, root vegetables that they grow and、um, and gather. And then they also、uh, hunt and fish, and so whatever they can catch, they eat as well. So this is a young、um, Chimane boy who's being trained in fishing by his father. And、uh, um, so I, I want to highlight the seventy-two percent of calories from carbohydrates because in the West, I think we get very caught up in numbers. You know, what's the exact number percentage of carbohydrates or fat or, or protein? But I think what's more important is actually the quality of the food and the quality of the nutrients themselves. So you know, whole unprocessed food. Foods, local,、uh, seasonal, all those things, and we'll talk much more about diet.、Um, so this population and this study was published in the Lancet, which is a, one of the, the top medical journals. Actually, had the lowest rates of heart disease of、uh, any population recorded. And they've done other studies of、um, similar groups and found, you know, similar rates of very low heart disease. So, what are they doing differently that's、uh, allowing them to escape this modern ep-、uh, plague that we, you know, all, that all of us are, are dealing with? So the first question is:、um, Is there a connection between gut health and heart health? And the answer is yes. So this was a paper from the European Heart Journal, which、um, raised some interesting questions. So patients with IBD or inflammatory bowel disease are、um, at much higher risk of heart disease, even and even though these patients have a lower prevalence of traditional risk factors like cholesterol and, and blood pressure, but they're much higher、um, rates of heart disease. And then there are other, patients with other、um, autoimmune diseases like、um, RA, which is rheumatoid arthritis, or、um, SLE, which is lupus. So autoimmune disease is important because there's a very strong gut uh, component. Um, so almost all autoimmune disease patients have some gut issues. So these patients have very high rates of heart disease, much more than you would predict based on their, you know, cholesterol, blood pressure, weight, all the traditional risk factors. So what's what's going on here? So one of the factors that、um, appears to be、uh, a link is the microbiome. So I'm curious, how many people have heard of the microbiome? 
you're okay. Most people. So you know that it re refers to the gut bacteria, um, which comprise over 100 trillion. And we only have about 10 trillion human cells. So there's 10 times as many bacteria as, uh, you know, as our human cells. And also, there's 100 times as many uh, genes. So humans have about 20,000 genes. And our bacteria actually have over 2 million. And we're just beginning to understand the effect of all of these genes on every aspect of our metabolism. Um, they have a big effect on inflammation, which is one of the root causes of most chronic diseases and heart disease. They affect uh, your immune system. They help with digesting food. Um, they help even making some of your essential nutrients as well. So the gut bacteria have a um, really uh, huge role to play in many aspects of our health. And uh, this is an interesting fact that if your gut bacteria were lined up end to end, they would actually stretch all the way to the moon. Um, and um, with the immune system as well, you know, 60 to 70 percent is located in the gut. And there are all these connections between the gut and other uh, organs like the skin, the brain, um, the heart we're going to talk about as well. And then there's this condition called leaky gut. So how many people have heard of leaky gut? Okay, so about half. So basically... In the intestine, you have these uh, what are called gap junctions, which basically create an impermeable barrier. So the normal gut lining is supposed to be impermeable you know, to the outside world. And when you have um, inflammation, then these uh, gap junctions become damaged. And basically, you have these, these gaps that uh, come, come into place between the cells and on the other side of that is our bloodstream. So when you have those gaps, things can enter that are not supposed to, like toxins and undigested food particles, uh, pathogens, and they can enter into the blood. And that triggers um, immune activation. Your immune system starts attacking all those foreign things. And that's one of the first steps in inflammation. <laughs> so what are the causes of leaky gut? So um, there's a number of them that are listed here. First is uh, food sensitivities. So when we're talking about gluten, which is, uh, you know, very uh, well-known these days, uh, there's actually a spectrum in that celiac disease is just one end of the spectrum where it's the, the most severe. But you can actually have a um, much larger percentage of the population which have NCGS, which is non-celiac gluten sensitivity, where it's not full-blown celiac disease, but they still have a sensitivity to gluten and as a result, you know, have some inflammation. Perhaps that's one of the steps in triggering leaky gut. And there are tests for that now that, uh, uh, that can be done. Um, other dietary factors, um, sugar, excess alcohol, certain uh, infections, and uh, various medications, if taken for too long or um, you know, taken uh, inappropriately, can also be a factor. And of course, the disrupted gut microbiome is one of the causes of, uh, of leaky gut, uh, as well as toxins and chronic stress. So there are many different factors that play into this condition of leaky gut. When you, have, uh, when you develop leaky gut, there's a vicious cycle that can result. So basically, you're having this undigested food uh, enter the, the bloodstream, and that leads to further food intolerances. Basically, the immune system attacks these undigested food particles, and you're developing more food sensitivities, and that worsens leaky gut. And so it's a vicious cycle that, be, uh, that you know, can get worse, and that leads to worsening autoimmune, uh, autoimmune conditions and immune system issues, as well as inflammation. 
Okay, so this is a picture of the gut microbiome. So this is what it actually looks like. So on the uh, right, you have in blue the uh, human cells. So this is what they look like. And then on the left uh, up here is all the gut bacteria. So you can see it's very crowded and uh, um, they're uh, you know, all bunched together there. And in the um, green there, so uh, can anyone guess what is that green layer that's there? Part of the intestine? Lining. It's the, it's mucus. Yeah. So this is a part of the um, human gut. Um, you know, the, the lining. There are cells that synthesize this mucus, and this is what you can see. That's the uh, that's the barrier that protects us from them. You know. So good fences make good neighbors. So if you have a, a really good uh, f fence here, which is the the mucus, that ensures that integrity. That you know the gut bacteria stay where they are and. Uh, our cells are, you know, where they need to be, and there's a, the proper communication. So, um, what's the main food for the gut bacteria? You know, what do they what do they like to eat? You know, you probably have heard about it in the news. Prebiotics, yeah. So, bas yeah, basically fiber, uh, in a word. And so, if we take an evolutionary perspective and look at um, fiber intake, and you know, which is the main food for our gut bacteria, we'll see that you know we evolved to actually consume about 100 to 150 grams of fiber per day. So when they look at some of these uh, hunter-gatherer societies and, uh, you know, tribes and which follow a traditional diet, generally they're consuming that. And that's how our microbiome evolved for, you know, 2 million years. So that's what the bacteria expect. And then when, when you look at the last 50,000 years, it's dropped to about 35 grams, which is the um, kind of daily recommendation now. But, and if you look at the average intake for Americans now, it's only uh, 15 grams. And uh, only, um, I think, 3% of Americans are getting the recommended intake of fiber. And uh, so there's been a huge reduction in our, in our diet. So the gut bacteria evolved to eat um, fiber, and but now there really isn't fiber available. So um, what are they going to eat, right? So they they have to find something else to eat. So the um, so what they have evolved to eat is actually our cells. So they've evolved to actually eat our uh, mucus. And so um, so if you look at this uh, this next picture, which will show the um, uh, comparison. So on the left, you have a healthy gut microbiome with an intact mucus layer. So you see that it's, uh, it's a nice thick, uh, thick green layer here. And this is the intestine here on the right. And then the blue is the uh, host. Uh, in this case, these are animal studies, but blue is the, the animal. And yellow is actually the fiber. So that's the fiber in various states of being consumed in the uh, digestive tract. And then when you take out the, uh, the MACs are the microbiome accessible carbohydrates, which are the fiber, the food source. When you take those out, you see that, you know, the, um, the bacteria begin to consume the green layer, which is the mucus layer. So they um, are basically evolved to begin uh, consuming this mucus layer and making it much thinner and thus making it much more likely that leaky gut will develop because that barrier is no longer there, you know, protecting us from them. So, um, so this is one of the key, key changes in um, the, um, the microbiome. So um, how quickly do you think it's possible to change your microbiome, you know, in terms of the, um, what would be the fastest length of time? Does anybody have a, a number? Six weeks? 
21 days, uh, one week. Yeah, whoever said that was, was right. So these two charts are actually uh, one week apart. And they're in um, this, uh, this researcher named Jeff Leach, who runs the Human Food Project. And basically on the left, he was taking in a very high uh, fiber diet. And then um, he was living in Africa with a uh, hunter-gatherer tribe. And then um, on the right was after a week of um, he decided to only eat at an American diner for the entire week, all of his, all of his meals. Um, and um, so in that week, this is the, the change that happened. And um, the, in red are the firmicutes, which are this uh, um, you know, important group of bacteria. And the ratio between the firmicutes and the bacteroides, the blue and the red, is one of the biggest uh, risk factors for obesity. So if you have um, a high level of the red and a low of the blue, that's protective against obesity. It's proper metabolism. And if you have a high level of the blue and a low level of the red, that is one of the risk factors for developing obesity. So uh, in just one week, you know, it's possible to really dramatically shift the bacteria, but it also means we can improve the microbiome quickly with the dietary changes. And then the final difference in terms of the evolutionary perspective is the um, plant diversity. And this is important because hunter-gatherer societies used to consume about 100 to 120 different plants per year. And each plant would feed a different type of bacteria because each plant has a different type of fiber, different type of um, polyphenols. And so microbiome diversity is one of the most important barometers of how healthy the microbiome is. And, uh, you know, the average American now eats between 8 to 10 plant foods the entire year. And, um, you know, a lot of them are, um, you know, like tomato, lettuce, tomato, and, you know, potatoes in the form of French fries. But... Um, <laughs> We've really lost a lot of this diversity. So one key point is just uh, varying the type of vegetables you eat, not eating the same thing every day, um, shopping where you may not shop traditionally. You know, get, uh, if you go to a farmer's market, it's changing constantly, which is perfect. But really trying to vary your diet beyond your usual habits, that's one way to increase the diversity of the microbiome. Okay, so coming back to the um, gut-heart axis. So, so we know that the microbiome is one regulator of inflammation throughout the body. And um, scientists have found that one of the key um, intermediates is this co compound called TLR4, which is toll-like receptor 4. So basically, this is part of the immune system. And when you have leaky gut, there are components that enter the blood and activate this receptor, and that actually is one of the triggers in causing atherosclerosis, which is the um, calcification of the blood vessels. So, um, so we're beginning to understand the links between the, um, you know, the, the gut and the heart, and also the individual mediators for those, um, those effects. So leaky gut, which we talked about, also can weaken the stability of plaque, so this is important because um, how does a heart attack happen? Well, most of the time it happens because one of the plaques in the blood, ves in the blood vessel breaks off and travels somewhere else and blocks a blood vessel. So anything that weakens the stability of a plaque can increase the risk of a heart attack. And leaky gut is one of those uh, conditions. There was another study which showed that patients with um, CHF, which is congestive heart failure, have um, increasing intestinal permeability, which is leaky gut syndrome, and also uh, overgrowth in the intestine of harmful bacteria and yeast. So the more severe their overgrowth and gut imbalances, the more severe their congestive heart failure as well.
So this is a slide for any of the scientifically uh, minded people in the room who just want to see. Basically, at the bottom, we have the intestinal microbiota or microbiome. And at the top is atherosclerosis in red. And this just shows that um, some of the mechanisms through which these connections happen. So translocation is basically leaky gut, which allows bacterial products to enter and then activate these toll-like receptors, which cause endothelial damage. But the gut bacteria can also affect um, your metabolism. They can affect your LDL cholesterol. So all these traditional risk factors are also affected by the gut microbiome. And so there's multiple ways in which the um, effects are contributing to heart disease. So now let's talk about uh, SIBO. So this was a study from the Cleveland Clinic, which is one of the top hospitals in the U.S., and they found that this um, connection with SIBO and heart disease was very strong. So in terms of um, um, patients with SIBO had 80% artery, uh, arteries that, were, you know, that had uh, coronary artery disease, whereas only 38% in those without SIBO. And um, same thing in terms of the number of coronary vessels. There was a very strong trend. And this led them to conclude that patients with this condition of bacterial overgrowth are actually very high risk for coronary artery disease. And this is a condition that can be screened for through a regular gastroenterologist. Um, there's a, it's called a breath test, which screens for this. And, you know, um, you might ask, well, but which came first? Was it the heart disease came first and caused the SIBO? Or was it the SIBO that came first and caused the heart disease? Well, we have some evidence to suggest that it was the SIBO that came first. And that is that Patients with SIBO are likely to have early markers of heart disease, and these are markers of arterial stiffness. So these are before you develop the atherosclerosis or the actual plaque, the vessels be, uh, begin to become very stiff. And then there's also this component called um, LDL cholesterol particle number. So with um, cholesterol, there's um, your regular cholesterol measurement, which your, your doctor would usually do, which is in milligrams per deciliter, which is the weight of the cholesterol uh, within a certain amount of blood. That uh, information is useful, but what's more predictive is actually this number called the LDL cholesterol particle number, which is a different test, uh, also available through regular labs like um, you know, LabCorp or Quest. But this number measures the um, actual number of cholesterol particles in the blood, which is more accurate predictor than the weight of the cholesterol. And we'll talk about that distinction a bit more. But SIBO raises this number. And so that's the important uh, link in terms of raising the risk of heart disease. And then also, SIBO contributes to systemic inflammation. So that's one of the, the other ways that it, uh, um, it affects the risk. And finally, SIBO affects vitamin K2. So uh, within blood vessels, you have these certain proteins which help prevent calcification, which is when the calcium deposits in the, uh, the wall. And these are, there are three important proteins which depend on vitamin K. So these are the, the MGP, the GAS6, and the protein S. So these three proteins actually uh, play an important role in keeping the blood vessel clean of, of calcium and reducing inflammation. But if you don't have enough vitamin K2, those uh, enzymes can't work properly. And SIBO uh, leads to reduced vitamin K absorption and uh, reduced absorption of other nutrients and also leads to reduced vitamin K production by the gut bacteria because it's an imbalance in the uh, gut bacteria. So this appears to be one of the main ways as well that SIBO affects the heart. So when we're talking about um, vitamin K2, we want to 
um, look at more uh, studies with actual people with heart disease. So this was a study called the Rotterdam study. It followed men for more than 15 years, and it found that the highest intake of vitamin K2 was associated with the lowest rate of heart disease, the lowest rate of heart attack and stroke, and the lowest uh, rate of aortic calcification, which is where there's calcium depositing in the uh, aortic valve. So um, so this was an interesting study that was in the Journal of Nutrition and was one of the first studies to show this link between vitamin K2 intake and uh, heart disease. So a number of studies in women have been done as well. There was a study of 16,000 women over eight years showing the same pattern that vitamin K2 intake is uh, associated with lower risk of heart disease. And they actually found it's um, what's called a dose-dependent manner. So every additional 10 micrograms per day uh, lowers the risk you know, significantly more. And uh, there was another study as well uh, with postmenopausal women looking at coronary calcification, um, which is the amount of calcium in the blood vessels of the heart. And the more vitamin K2 was taken in, the lower the calcification. There was no effect of vitamin K1 in either study. So when you think of vitamin K, you probably think of leafy greens and those kind of things. So that's uh, vitamin K1. That uh, generally um, was not shown to have an effect in, in these studies. We'll talk about the food sources of K2. But um, it's clear that in both men and women, it appears to be you know, very protective for uh, heart disease. Okay. And then in medicine, we always want to see uh, RCTs, which are randomized controlled trials, because that is the gold standard for evidence and research. And so there, um, there was a randomized controlled trial, which was controlled with a placebo, um, also in, in women, showing that um, 180 micrograms of K2 per day over three years improved arterial stiffness. So remember, this is one of those uh, markers for early heart disease, how stiff the arteries are. And um, it was especially helpful in women who had a high arterial stiffness to begin with. So that's, uh, that's really encouraging. The same benefit was shown in terms of improving arterial stiffness in patients with kidney disease. So when you have um, these placebo-controlled trials, you know, it's a um, very high quality of evidence showing that vitamin K2 has this really powerful role. So just one slide about uh, the effect on bones. So to prevent osteoporosis or osteopenia, vitamin K2 is very um, helpful. So um, this, uh, does anyone know what this food is that's pictured? Yeah. Natto. Yeah, exactly. So it's a Japanese dish. It's basically a fermented soybean dish that's very high in vitamin K2. And uh, those women who consumed the most uh, natto had the least bone loss. And uh, same thing, there was also a randomized control trial looking at uh, vitamin K2 for uh, bone health and showing that it's, it's highly effective for that purpose. So let's uh, look a little more at vitamin K. So there's vitamin K1, which is found in, uh, in leafy greens. And the vitamin K was K is German uh, from coagulation. So it was first thought, uh, researched for its effect in blood clotting. And so vitamin K1 was just assumed to be vitamin K, and vitamin K2 was only discovered much later. And that's mostly found in animal foods and fermented foods. It has to be synthesized by animals um, or bacteria. 
And with vitamin K2, it can be divided into you know, a few different subtypes. And it is also produced by different bacteria in your large intestine. So these are the different strains that are important and the different subtypes of vitamin K2. So um, as far as we know, most of the subtypes are equally beneficial. Um, so it's possible to also make some amount of vitamin K2, but what you're getting in through your diet is, you know, is really critical. So um, believe it or not, these are actually all the um, research-based benefits of vitamin K2. So there actually are a large number. Um, so we talked about bone health. So what vitamin K2 does is when you take in calcium from food, vitamin K2 tells your body, put calcium where it belongs, you know, put calcium in the bones, put calcium in the teeth. Don't put it in the blood vessels where you get heart disease. Don't put it in the kidney where you would get kidney stones. So, um, so it has, you know, multiple benefits there. And then it seems to also be helpful for blood sugar, for um, cancer uh, protection, and also beneficial effects on hormones and uh, sexual function, as well as exercise performance. So I think it's going to be a very exciting area of research in terms of the other benefits of vitamin K2 uh, going forward. So this are, these are the foods, and these are some of the, um, the food sources. So you can see that natto is by far the highest source because the, uh, you know, and again, it has nothing to do with the soybeans themselves because miso and uh, tofu, you know, have no K2. It's basically the, the natto bacteria is very good at making K2. And uh, that's, I think, why it's been used. So natto is by far, if you just had it, you know, once a week or twice a week, you would probably be covered. Um, Second on the list is um, foie gras, which is not an option in California. It's, it's illegal. Um, third, uh, so beef liver is actually a very high, uh, high source. And, uh, and then you have the cheeses. So depending on which uh, bacteria is, was used, certain uh, fermented cheeses, hard cheeses, probably more, appear to have um, a little higher level. And then you can see the numbers are, are there, but they start to drop off quite a bit in terms of, you know, egg yolk is a good option. Um, and then um, meat like chicken and beef does have some. And fermented foods, because of the bacteria in them, have, you know, a small amount. So sauerkraut does have uh, some as well. But, um, yeah, if you get a variety of these foods, you know, regularly, I think that's one of the good ways through diet to make sure that you're getting adequate uh, vitamin K2 level and also keeping your gut bacteria healthy so they can also produce vitamin K2 is, uh, you know, is very important. Yogurt? Um, yogurt does not really have a significant level of vitamin K2. Yeah, it's really the cheese fermenting bacteria. Um, so, and then with sauerkraut, there's a small amount as well. But yeah, vinegar? that's apple the question. No, apple cider vinegar is not a, a really a fermented food, so there's no live bacteria in it. So that would not be a, a source. Yeah. So you can see why, you know, so many people are deficient because there really are not a large list of foods. It's fairly limited. And uh, um, but, you know, you know, these are some of the foods that traditionally were eaten in society for um, for a number of years and are, are sort of out of favor now. You know, like not many people eat liver or organ meats or, you know, those kind of things. Uh, in a question about is uh, K2 in multivitamins? So yes, it depends on the multivitamin. I think a lot of them don't have it. But if you read the label and it does say K2, that would be an option. So uh, certainly that's an, that's an option as well if you're not able to get it through food. 
how much is that? So good question. Yeah, I mean, most of the studies have looked at about like 100 micrograms uh, per day. As So going back to the um, – so, uh, you know, going, uh, if you look at the um, – well, if you look at the studies on reversing um, bone loss, they use more like 200 micrograms. Um, but it, just for a daily intake, between 50 to 100 micrograms would be, would be good on average per day. Celebrate New Year's Eve and ring in 2020 with the perfect view at the Commonwealth Club's premier Embarcadero location. As thousands of spectators watch from below, you'll revel in rooftop views of the famous Embarcadero fireworks, indulgent cuisine, high-end spirits, lively entertainment, and the ultimate New Year's Eve experience. Our New Year's Eve party was ranked in the top 10 parties of San Francisco. So visit our website and reserve your spot today. CommonwealthClub.org You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. So we're kind of come back to the the gut and we talked about um, the role of you know of leaky gut and uh, we know that um, this probably explains why patients with autoimmune disease have much higher rates of heart disease because is because of the leaky gut connection. So before we um, talk more about leaky heart, so that's one of the newer um, conditions that's being talked about is leaky heart syndrome. Um, I want to review some of the other organs that are uh, implicated with this role with the gut microbiome. <clears throat> so we're going to talk about leaky brain. That's the, uh, uh, the next slide. And uh, oh, you have a question? Well, it's a great question. So, um, so typically the question was, how do you find out if you have a leaky gut? Well, um, sometimes there are symptoms. So that could include um, gas or bloating or uh, constipation or diarrhea. Um, sometimes, unfortunately, it does not have GI symptoms, but it, it could cause fatigue or brain fog or you know, nonspecific symptoms. And then other, and then other times there are uh, no symptoms, but there are tests that measure um, leaky gut, which can be stool tests. There are stool tests and blood tests that can screen for it now, which are uh, some of the more specialized testing that we do in our clinic. So question was about colonoscopy and endoscopy. So um, that, that's very good at looking at structural abnormalities that are, um, you know, visible microscopically, uh, actually to the naked eye. But um, unfortunately, it doesn't really tell you anything about leaky gut because this is only visible microscopically and you can't see it on a colonoscopy. It has to be indirectly measured via stool testing or by blood testing markers that it is possible to tell. And uh, the, so leaky gut has been found to be present in various other organs as well. Uh, so leaky brain is now um, something you can see. So, science, so neurologists have documented on MRIs. So if you look on the left, this is a normal um, brain. And then on the right is a brain with uh, Alzheimer's early stage. And so it appears that uh, it's the blood-brain barrier that uh, leaks. And it appears that a compromised blood-brain barrier is part of the early um, pathology of Alzheimer's disease. So this is um, one of the, the organs. And uh, so let's go on to the... So this, when this came out, all the uh, neurologists were very excited. And then the dentists are very excited about leaky mouth. So this is the... Uh, 
So there's a whole oral microbiome, which is very important. Um, it seems to really also affect inflammation if you have imbalances in oral bacteria. So this, uh, this refers to the permeability of the gingival epithelium, the lining of the gums. There is now a leaky lung. So the lung has its own bacteria. There's a lung microbiome. And um, the tight junctions in the lung they are very similar to those in the gut. So when they're irritated by smoke or uh, air pollution, you know, uh, it's true that air pollution is a very important risk factor for autoimmune disease, um, you know, diabetes, uh, probably even heart disease. So when that's irritated, then bacteria and toxins can enter through the gaps that are um, uh, produced there, and that affects the immune system and um, it's interesting that one of the antibodies used to diagnose rheumatoid arthritis appears to be actually produced in the lung. Um, it's the uh, CCP antibody, for anybody who wants to know. But that antibody is one of the early indicators of rheumatoid arthritis, which is why smokers have a very high rate of rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, perhaps the um, role of air pollution is important as well in this uh, autoimmune condition. And then the gynecologists have come up with leaky vagina, which is actually uh, the vaginal... They, I think they need a better name for this. But, uh, <laughs> but basically, the vaginal microbiome or gut bacteria is very important. Um, when there's dysbiosis, which is overgrowth of pathogens and bad bacteria, it leads to um, all types of you know, issues like recurrent yeast infections, UTIs, that sort of thing. Uh, research by Dr. Jason Harlack from Australia is... Uh, um, very important for um, for this as well. And I'm doing research on this condition called leaky wallet. And uh, so it started soon after marriage. And, uh, and then um, soon as, uh, then once I had kids, it got much worse. So I'm hoping to publish that soon. So um, yeah, so we're going to come back to leaky heart. And uh, basically, what this refers to is uh, endothelial dysfunction. So the endothelium is the innermost lining of your blood vessel. So that's, that's your blood vessel that's pictured right here. So the innermost lining is actually just a single layer of cells. And um, so if, if, it can, uh, if it's damaged, then it can allow cholesterol to pass through. And that's one of the first steps in uh, creation of cholesterol plaque. So leaky heart is really uh, leaky blood vessels. And we're, we're not talking about um, heart valves because you can have leaky heart valves, but that's the blood that's pumped through the heart. These are the blood vessels that supply the heart with oxygen and nutrients. So when there is a high level of um, um, you know, oxidative stress or a high number of these uh, LDL cholesterol particles, that actually increases the risk of this condition, the leaky um, heart or leaky blood vessels. So this is a picture of the um, blood vessel. And so, um, so we talked earlier about the cholesterol. So cholesterol is fat-soluble, so it cannot uh, dissolve in blood. So it has to be carried by these transport proteins, which are here. So you, you can think of the cholesterol. Uh, the cholesterol is in yellow. So that is, you can think of these as boats. These are the particles are like boats that are carrying the cholesterol. So the regular test you have through your doctor measures the amount of this... Uh, the load, the amount of cholesterol in this unit of blood. So it's basically looking at the, the weight of all the 
cargo that's being carried by these boats. But if you would be more accurate and logical, we didn't measure how many boats are there because the more boats there are, the more they're likely they're going to bump into the wall and cause damage. And that's what the LDL particle number does, measures the number of these particles. So that's a more useful predictor in terms of uh, heart disease risk. And um, so here is the endothelium. So if you had, in this case, they, you already have leaky heart because this the cholesterol has uh, escaped through the this lining, the, uh, the endothelium, and it's starting to accumulate there and um, getting uh, oxidized, which is what this yellow picture is. So that's one of the first steps in the uh, creation of the plaque. So that's why it's so important to also know your um, LDL particle number. So just to review the traditional perspective on heart disease, so all of these are absolutely valid. So these are the established uh, risk factors for heart disease. Um, of course, you know, high cholesterol, um, high blood pressure, inactivity, diabetes, obesity, tobacco use, and aging, which is one of the uh, factors in the West. And then when you look at the more um, holistic or integrative perspective on heart disease, you can see some of the factors that actually contribute to the traditional risk factors. So when you look at um, this um, leaky gut or SIBO, we know that that contributes to um, diabetes, that contributes to um, insulin resistance, and then you have the elevated LDL particle number. So insulin resistance is one of the biggest risk factors for that. And then you also have uh, toxins and environmental pollutants, maybe air pollution. Um, deficiency of key nutrients is important here, like magnesium and vitamin D. Of course, we talked about vitamin K2. <clears throat> stress is a really big factor. We haven't even touched on it, but stress plays a huge role in gut health, in heart health, um, in you know all aspects of, uh, of the body. So these are some of the more... Um, you know, holistic factors that are very important for heart health. And um, when you can work on the microbiome and your diet and lifestyle, then these factors can be uh, mitigated and improved to, you know, address your overall heart health. So we're going to now talk about the foods. So this, uh, what we're going to cover 12 foods that are really essential and important for heart health. And the, this is a sort of a rough, uh, these foods are all part of the, my paleovedic diet, which is my general diet that I recommend for people. So bone broth is number one. And uh, bone broth is very important for um, the microbiome. It's, it has a lot of gelatin, which prevents leaky gut. Um, it has glycine and other amino acids that heal the gut lining. So um, as a general uh, food for, you know, for gut health and heart health, bone broth is actually, um, I know it's hyped uh, a lot these days, but there actually is a nutritional value in having it consistently. Does it have a lot of fat? The question about uh, fat in bone broth. Um, so, um, not necessarily. It depends how it's prepared. You know, it uh, it can um, have a lot of salt if you buy it pre-made. That's one thing to look look at, watch out for. But um, generally, if you're it, if you're preparing it at home, it does not have to have very high fat. You know, uh, that's a, that's a good option too. Yeah, buying store-bought gelatin um, gets you some of the benefits of bone broth, and uh, it's certainly a good option because gelatin is very healing for the gut. Yeah, so the vegetarian option would be um, L-glutamine. So that's uh, an amino acid that also helps with healing leaky gut. And for those who don't want to have bone broth, uh, that's an, a good alternative. Uh, collagen, collagen powder would also be good.
Um, so any particular kind of bone? So not not really. They um, have studied uh, you know any type of uh, bone broth from chicken to beef to even fish broth uh, seem to have equal. So second is fish, and uh, uh, of course we know that you know fish is very healthy for for the heart, uh, very high in omega threes, very high in antioxidants. So we're always looking for the ratio between the anti-inflammatory omega threes and more pro-inflammatory omega six fats. So you want to have high omega three intake and low omega six uh, fat intake in your diet. So best way to do that is with fish. And I usually recommend at least uh, twice a week. And if you're concerned about the mercury in fish, then go with the smaller fish like um, sardines and anchovies, uh, salmon, you know, those types of things. They're much lower in mercury, which is a valid concern. We talked about natto. And uh, um, so it's certainly an acquired taste. And, uh, you know, most people don't acquire it. Uh, but um, um, I think, uh, you know, you, you can try it. I actually like it myself. And uh, you can get it from Japantown, you know, just down the, the street here. And uh, um, again, you only have to have it once or twice a week because it's so high in uh, vitamin K2 that it does not have to be a daily thing. Um, you know, it has a hundred times the amount of K2 as, uh, um, you know, like uh, sauerkraut, for example. So um, really a superfood for the heart. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons probably why in Japan, heart disease is, is relatively low, uh, especially among women who eat a lot of natto. You really can't. You'll find out if you try it. There's no way that you can really. You, it's impossible to to OD on it. Yes, yes, no. There's really no um, no upper limit in terms of the the safety of it. No, not no problem there. And uh, um, so berries are very heart healthy. So the antioxidants in them, the uh, phytochemicals, they're. Um, actually have anti-inflammatory compounds. Um, all types of berries are very good. Um, yes, Sorry, question. Where do you puree them? Like um, yes, uh, so pureed berries uh, basically would have the same effect. Yeah, um, I think, uh, you know, the with any type of smoothie, um, if you have any issues with blood sugar, you want to be careful with the pureed uh, fruits because that can raise blood sugar you know, a little more quickly. But they will still have all the same nutrients, so that would be okay. Okay, and so nuts are uh, very beneficial for heart health. So um, with nuts, you want to also keep in mind the omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, remember, that we talked about. So, so, the, so the nuts that are the lowest in omega-6 are uh, macadamias, um, cashews, very low, and hazelnuts. So those are the three that are the lowest in omega-6 fats. And uh, pictured here, you know, walnuts are, they are high in omega-6, but they also have omega-3. So in that sense, they're um, um, protective. Um, nuts with higher levels of omega-6 would be uh, like peanuts or, um, you know, um, I think almonds are, no, almonds are not high in omega-6. Almonds are also uh, very healthy. So, uh, but most nuts are, you know, almonds, walnuts, um, most nuts are, are very beneficial. Sunflower seeds as well, yes. So nuts and seeds both. Um, chia seeds, very high in omega-3s as well. So that's another very beneficial food. So herbs and spices. So these work in uh, four main ways for heart health. So they're very powerful anti-inflammatories. So we all know that uh, turmeric you know, is a great anti-inflammatory. So is ginger, garlic. Actually, most spices are anti-inflammatory. They help uh, regulate blood sugar very beneficial for uh, insulin resistance. They help um, the microbiome. So spices actually are prebiotic. They feed your good bacteria, and they 
get rid of the bad bacteria because spices are how food was preserved for thousands of years. And um, um, yeah, so in multiple ways, just a variety, again, as many different herbs and spices as you can cook with, that would be the most uh, beneficial. And also incorporating those that you don't use regularly so you can get the variety. Um, and then fermented foods, um, very beneficial for the gut bacteria. And um, I think that you know, even though the um, K, vitamin K2 content is low, for example, of um, sauerkraut, the benefit in terms of the good bacteria and um, uh, prebiotics in fermented foods are really huge. So it doesn't have to be a large amount. You know, just a, a tablespoon worth of a fermented food per meal is probably a good amount. Just consistency is really important in terms of the microbiome and the effect on that. Uh, kombucha does count. Yeah, it is. It's one of the foods. It's not a magical elixir, but uh, it uh, has you know beneficial bacteria. So it would be one of those foods. Yes. So then we have uh, green tea or black tea. So this was an article from the American Heart Association saying that tea drinking is linked to better uh, heart health. So um, even the established you know mainstream is aware now that. Uh, all types of tea, black tea, green tea, white tea, um, appear because of the antioxidants and polyphenols to have those those benefits. Herbal teas are not not so they it might, but what's really established is is those regular teas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So oatmeal, no surprise. Yeah, it lowers cholesterol. But interestingly, it's, actually, it's very high in antioxidants and other uh, phytonutrients. So it's not well known for those factors, but um, those are also very beneficial for uh, heart health. Oat milk. Oh, so a uh, question about oat milk. So um, I think, uh, yeah, you have to be careful about the sugar content. Some of these uh, non-dairy milks are high in sugar. But as a general food, I think uh, eating oatmeal is probably far better than having the oat milk because you're, you don't have the fiber content. But if you're allergic to regular milk, then it's probably a good alternative. Um, so leafy greens. They have uh, this component called SQ sugars, which are not absorbed by the body, but they're broken down by the gut bacteria. So leafy greens are one of the most powerful foods for the gut microbiome, and um, getting a variety is, uh, is really helpful. So I'm going to try to go quickly through the remainder of the slides and then take questions at the end, just in the interest of time. <clears throat> so beans and legumes are very powerful. Yeah, uh, properly soaked and, um, you know, um, if you soak beans overnight, that makes them much more digestible. Um, I think canned beans are actually a, a viable option. So I think usually canned beans are pressure cooked and that inactivates the lectins and other anti-nutrients. So getting a variety of beans and legumes is, uh, is very important. Dark chocolate. So... Um, <laughs> So dark chocolate, a small amount, is uh, beneficial in terms of the antioxidants, you know, very high in antioxidants, actually lowers blood, uh, blood pressure slightly, and, um, um, you know, good for the soul. Um, and, um, yeah, the, it, it has to be at least 70% uh, dark, so that's, uh, you know, what the studies are. But just keyword is a small amount. So um, I'm going to close and take a few questions. Thank you very much. Oh. Um, I have two two questions. So, for someone with a high um, calcium score and, and some other 
markers. How much K2 should they be taking? I'm asking about my dad, who is currently taking two servings of like 180 milligram capsules. Um, is there added benefit if he took like, let's say four or five since his calcium score is already really high? Um, no, I don't think so. I think in that range of, um, you know, 300, 360, which was what was studied. Yeah. Beyond that, I don't think there's any additional benefits. So they, I think he's doing the right thing. Got it. And my dad's calcium score is 1200, wow. which um, I'm very worried about, obviously. And he's currently, I've put him on a kind of keto green diet and he's trying to lose some weight. Personally, I'm obviously not a doctor, but I've advised him against taking statins for now and just doing all, all the supplements and health approaches. Is there anything else that you would recommend for someone with such a high calcium score besides, I guess, everything that we've discussed today? Um, you know, it's, I think all of the factors that we talked about, I think ensuring gut health is, is really crucial. Um, and, you know, ma making sure all the traditional risk factors like blood pressure and, you know, cholesterol and are, are managed. So I think it's really a holistic approach that we need to take. In that case. So, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned all these variables, uh, relation to kidney, mm -hmm. I sort of, you've been quiet about this. Can you tell us about Some of the food items, some of the ideas you mentioned may have negative effect of kidney. Oh, um, good question. Yeah, so with kidney, basically, if a person has kidney disease or that kind of thing, you have to be careful with protein intake so that, you know, it's important not to get too high with protein in the diet. And then sodium uh, salt would be another thing to be careful. So sometimes fermented foods are high in salt. So, you know, I, I think uh, you always have to customize it to each situation. So with kidney disease, it's possible to follow the diet, but you have to adjust it for those factors. As a, a general person who's healthy, none of these things should hurt the kidney. It's more for a person with kidney disease that it's uh, an issue. I have a question about Ayurveda uh -huh. because I've weaved in and out of it for 10 years. I used to have an all or nothing mentality towards it and I always would abandon it because it was a little strict. But what do you think about the all or nothing for Ayurveda? Can you incorporate bits and pieces of it and still get the benefit of it? Oh, great question. Yeah. So in my talk tonight, I didn't even cover Ayurveda because there's so much to talk about. But um, I think it's absolutely possible to get benefits from some elements of it. You know, I think uh, spices are considered medicine in Ayurveda. So even just that one step of using more spices is a great way to get benefits. Um, I think Ayurveda really excels with the mind-body connection. So all those practices are so powerful. So I think that even some incorporation would be, you know, very healthful. Thank you. I have one more question about fiber. Uh -huh. Um, it's uh, taken me a while to adjust to a higher fiber diet. How do you suggest, what do you suggest people do to increase it without having upset? No, that's a great question. So it has to be very gradual. Yeah. So like with anything, let's say you're going to start fermented foods, you wouldn't want to start drinking three kombuchas, you know, the very first day. You, because it really takes time for the gut microbiome to adjust. So very gradual is the, the way to go. With natto, do you have a way to prepare it on your own or is it better to just buy it at a Japanese store? Um, it is possible to prepare it on your own. You just need to get those uh, natto bacteria, which you can order online now, like anything. And you can, if you're adventurous, fermented at, at home. Some people do that. Uh, is it possible to uh, get all the benefits you've talked about this evening on a vegan diet? So, uh, fish and everything good, else. good question. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's possible. Um, it requires a lot of planning. I think, uh, you know, I have a lot of, uh, vegan patients who have mostly, you know, French fries and beer, you know, and they consider themselves very healthy. So, um, I think it's, uh, it's possible. I think, uh, K2, you know, it, you can find it in some, that might be the one nutrient that's hard to, to get, but I think with careful planning, it, it's doable. 
You mentioned uh, beef liver is good. Is calf's liver just as good? Which liver? Calf's liver calf's is liver? just as good? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. And how many eggs could one eat per week? So um, so they've done studies that for uh, about 70% of people, the amount of cholesterol in their diet uh, does not affect their blood cholesterol level. So um, it's, uh, but, you know, it depends on the average person. I, I say for most people, one per day is, should be no problem. So seven, seven to 10 egg yolks a week, unless you have an issue with high cholesterol, which you have to then talk to your doctor about. Thank you. I'd like to put a plug in for Original Joe's. I was there yesterday. They have a great... <laughs> calf's liver with uh, onion and bacon, 12 ounces. You can share it with two other people. And it's really, really good. Um, and uh, I have a question, too, about reversing heart disease with your diet. Do you proclaim that, that you can reverse heart atherosclerosis through your diet? Do you proclaim that? Well, there have been studies showing that uh, you can reverse heart disease with diet. Most of the studies have been very low-fat, uh, you know, plant-based diets. So I think that uh, it's put, so this is a more of a prevention type of approach, but uh-huh. once you have heart disease, it, it, it's di- still possible to affect it through diet. So okay. that's true for sure. Yeah, so she mentioned statins. Uh, could you comment on statins and beta blockers and also calcium supplements? Okay. So uh, how many hours do we have left to talk about that? But, you know, it's a really big topic. I think uh, um, depends on the person. It's a very individual decision. Anyone who takes the statin should definitely be on coenzyme Q10. That's one of the key nutrients for heart health that statins deplete. Um, If anyone has had a heart attack, then uh, statin is uh, clearly beneficial. So for secondary prevention after a heart attack, it's no doubt. For primary prevention in somebody who has not had a heart attack, the benefit is small, you know, and so there are downsides as well to, you know, side effects and other risks. So um, it's a very complex question. Um, beta blockers are um, more an issue if you have high blood pressure. In, In that case, they would be appropriate. With calcium, it's really best to get it through food. And then um, if you do um, take a calcium supplement, you have to make sure your K2 intake is uh, good because otherwise calcium supplements raise the risk of you know kidney stones, raise the risk of heart disease maybe because those people have not had enough K2 uh, in their diet. Yep. Would paneer follow up in the fermented foods? Uh, yeah, good question. So paneer is uh, fermented. You know, I don't think they've studied that, but as a cheese, it should have some uh, K2, but it's probably on the lower end in terms of uh, what, you know, is there. So you mentioned they could um, do a breath test for SIBO. Yes. What are they measuring? And the second question is, didn't it used to be the type of LDL particle, whether it was the fluffy or the dense, that was the big thing? Is that out gone now and it's more the number? That's correct, yeah. The, because the um, we used to think that was protective if you just had the fluffy particles, right. but uh, that's no longer true. The latest research is it's the number of particles that is okay. more important. And then the breath test for SIBO is basically measuring methane or hydrogen gases. Those are the, the gases that are measured in the test, yeah. Um, do you recommend testing the level for K2, uh, K2 um, and what's the best way to test it? We don't have a test, so that's one of the uh, – it's a good question. But um, we have tests for other vitamins, but uh, not for K2. So the only way to really approach it, I think, is to try to increase the amount in the diet. Can you eat too much? 
It's really hard to eat too much uh, K2. Yeah, not, not really possible. Yeah. Um, where does avocados fit into the picture? So very healthy. Yeah, I mean, um, in talking about um, monounsaturated fats like uh, avocados, um, olive oil, you know, nuts and seeds. So absolutely a healthy food. I think um, very beneficial. And um, does anything mitigate eosinophilic gastritis or ileitis? Yeah, that's a um, more complex condition, and uh, um, certainly, you know, there's not a dietary fix for that. It would require close work with a holistic practitioner to to really try to address that. Um, your slide showing fermented foods were all plant based. Does yogurt or buttermilk or any of that help, or is oh, a plant? Yes. No, as a fermented food, yeah, dairy fermented foods are absolutely healthy and have the same benefits okay. as the plant ones. Yeah. I uh, what uh, test do you recommend for the microbiome to have it tested? So um, there's different ways. Now, um, the general public you, uh, can do a lot of stool testing. Uh, they're like Ubiome or um, other labs like that that measure the, you know, the microbiome. And then um, there are, um, if you see an integrative practitioner, there are other companies that offer more medical-grade microbiome tests, and those we you know, typically order as well. So it's all stool testing. That's the, the best way to assess it. Hi, can you say a few words about uh, getting a stroke? What what would you say to prevent a stroke? What would be the best? Yeah, so actually it's uh, it's very similar because um, under um, cardiovascular disease, the general heading, you know, heart disease and stroke are two of the, the major events. So um, I actually feel like the approach would be pretty similar. Um, the talk tonight was really focused on heart disease, but I think the recommendations are, are pretty much similar for, for stroke as well because it's in the same category of a vascular kind of event. Um, so if someone is on preventative statin drugs, does that increase their um, chance for getting Alzheimer's, one? Second, is, that, is there a healthy way to get off statins, or can they just stop it and just have a healthy diet instead? Well, um, it's, uh, no, it does not appear to be an increased risk of uh, Alzheimer's from statins. And uh, no, I would never advise anyone to suddenly stop any medication. Um, you know, you, you'll want to work with your doctor and uh, maybe work with a nutritionist or holistic practitioner to kind of gradually uh, get, try to get off it. But um, it has to be a gradual process, not a, not a sudden one. So uh, I'm Bill Grant, uh, co-chair of the Club's Health and Medicine Member Forum. We thank Dr. Akhil Palanasamy for his comments here today. We also thank our audiences here as well as those listening to this recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating more than 116 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.